There it is. Jake Nager, the moment of truth with our music. Thank you. Moment of Truth, got a new record coming out this August. Pump for that. It's Cantori and you. Our guest today, John Carter and my puppy Bailey. What's up, Bailey? Hey, Bailey. Come here, girl. Got a uh, got a new puppy a couple of months ago. I haven't really talked about this because, uh, well, uh, something happened beginning of the year. We lost our dog, Felix, and it's uh, something really that, uh, oh, boy already getting uncomfortable i don't like discussing it i had a really hard time with it to be honest with you which was a trip because it was my wife's dog and always a punchline to me like i hate that dog guess what i didn't hate the dog i love the dog and i learned how much i love the dog when we lost the dog over the holidays and uh just things went awry and uh, so awry that it's something that i'm honestly really not comfortable talking about and that's coming from a dude who'll talk about pretty much anything so on the positive, uh, we do have a new puppy here by the name of Bailey, who's my little girl. So friggin' awesome, but I kind of need some help with Bailey. In fact, before we get to this interview with John Carter, uh, you know I have to hit the sponsor mentions, but I do have something for some dog owners here, okay? My uh, my email is cantori at youonline, y-e-w-online.com, and, and if you can help me with this, uh, please uh, email me. I would love to hear from you especially if you're a fellow dog owner or maybe you're a dog trainer, who knows? But I'm having two issues. The first, potty training, okay? She um, she loves to pee on her mats indoors, but when it comes to peeing outside, she doesn't like peeing outside. She prefers to pee on her mats indoors. We have those little pee pads, you know? And she'll pee on the pads, but then I take her outside and she doesn't want to go outside. And then we'll take her inside and she'll pee right on the pad. And the same thing to a degree is happening with the poop. Except she's not pooping on the pads. She's just pooping in the house like a human. I'll take her outside. She has no interest in pooping outdoors. Just pooping inside. So the first question is, how do I get the dog to pee and poop outside and realize that she's not a human? That's the first question. And it pivots right into the second question. Sleeping at night. We made a horrific mistake. When we first got the puppy, she was crate trained. Then the puppy starts whining. Instead of sleeping through the whines, we let the puppy out, and now the puppy sleeps in bed with us. Oh, I know. Cardinal sin. I know. I know. I can already hear you. What are you doing? But uh, the puppy now is in bed with us every night, and it's become impossible to get her back in her crate. She just wants to sleep in bed with me and my wife. And here she is looking at me with these eyes. Oh, Bailey. As she kisses me, I love her so much. But she drives us mad because she's pooping and peeing in the house and, and won't get out of our bed. And I need help. She's six months old. She's a mutt. She's part Australian shepherd, part, part poodle of some sort, and part Benji dog. I don't, I don't know, but she's awesome, and she's the sweetest thing ever, but uh, we're having those issues. So if you have solutions, I'm not kidding. I'd love to hear from you. Cantori at youonline.com. Ow, as she bites me. But that's not a problem. She's just teething. Uh, I do want to thank our sponsors, BajaBound.com. 
I want to take Bailey here down to Mexico. It's so awesome. I take her, uh, I take her down to Dog Beach in the van. Open up the van, let her go. Took her down to Fiesta Island. Oh, so awesome. But uh, if I'm going to take her down to Mexico, got to make sure I've got my uh, Mexican auto insurance. And I go to BajaBound.com. In fact, I've been going to them. No joke. Jeff and his crew for uh, for over 10 years. BajaBound.com. The only place to go if you're looking for auto insurance and traveling south of the border. Whether it's for uh, for a surf trip, grabbing lobster, craft beer, or going to see uh, my buddy Juan down at Oscars. Got himself a got himself a TJ location at Oscars. I love it. But uh, yes, BajaBound.com for your Mexican auto insurance. And uh, stoked to talk to John Carter here, entrepreneur. I'm also working with some other entrepreneurs. Uh, the Scooter Farm. If you've got a kid at home who's a scooter kid, go to the Scooter Farm for your scooter needs. Definitely mention you and they'll hook you up with a little deal. South Coast Surf Shops, they do the same thing. <laughs> My dog is now attacking me. And uh, and then finally, ow! do want to thank uh, Tory Holistics. It's kind of funny because John Carter here, our featured entrepreneur, has a really funny weed story. And uh, he used to be his own little Tory Holistics back in the day. I'll just say that much. Uh, currently, Tory Holistics, though, is legal, licensed, and uh, the number one shop in town. I'll tell you, they're doing it the right way. Have been for years now. They're above bar and uh, serving all of North County. They're in Sorrento Valley right at the 5805 Merge, and they have all sorts of products. Uh, THC, CBD, if you're looking for the non-psychoactive components of the plant, uh, Tory Holistics, one-stop shop, and they deliver Tory to you. All the information online at toryholistics.com as we uh, pivot into John Carter here, who I met years ago when he first started his company, Mogul, and uh, he was using his dog, Mojo. As I get bit by mine, uh, John has this uh, French bulldog by the name of Mojo who was used uh, for all of Mogul's marketing. And I was helping John uh, with copywriting and marketing services for Mogul when he first started the company years ago. So it was cool not only getting reunited with John, but also getting reunited with his dog, Mojo, who is pretty much as gray as I am these days. All right. Everyone loves calling themselves an entrepreneur, <laughs> but you're actually an entrepreneur. So that's why there I wanted to. That. That's why. Entrepreneurs? I, yeah, I don't call myself one. And I know <laughs> probably people in my position would say I am one, but I use that word so carefully because I really do think entrepreneurs are. I, I use that as a term that's dedicated to someone who has had profound success working for themselves and creating their own thing and you fall into that category. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting. I just had this conversation over drinks the other night and entrepreneurs, um, it, not all the time, but I think a lot of the time they're actually sort of born as an entrepreneur. I mean, the guys that I talk to that are absolutely going nutso nowadays and have several companies that have sort of hit these 100 employee plus ranges and are really making these huge impacts, when they were like, 9, 10, 11, 12, they were like selling stuff on the side of the street right. and sort of always had this in their blood that they just had to, um, you know, sort of be, uh, you know, hustling and it's just sort of in their nature and it's all natural. I mean, that was definitely me. When I was 11, I had a, um, a hot dog stand at the end of our driveway. I didn't know how to cook or anything, so I would take the um, 
packages of hot dogs my parents would get at Costco, and I would just nuke them in the microwave Come until on. they exploded, and then I would sell them for a dollar or two dollars with with a slice of cheese on them. And uh, I made all these signs. I put them all around the neighborhood. I had like this line of cars buying my crappy hot dogs. <laughs> Don't know why. Like I would never buy you know hot dogs for, from a kid. Thinking back to it, but people were buying it. Maybe they thought it was cute. Sure. And then all of a sudden, a cop car came uh, at the bottom <laughs> end of the line, and I thought the cop wanted to buy some hot dogs, and he shows up. This is my first day in operation. I think I'd made like forty bucks already. And he comes up and he's like, um, you know, son, where's your food permit? And I'm like, food permit? What's that? He's like, I could take you to jail right now. I'm shutting you down. You can't sell food without a food permit. I was freaking out. I think what I, a dick. Total dick. <laughs> I think I might have cried. Uh, and my dad came out and was like, hey, don't be a dick. And he kind of like, you know, everything worked out. I didn't get taken to jail or anything. But, you know, all that stuff was sort of inherent. And so, it, but it's a tricky one, right? Because I've also heard of entrepreneurs that have done amazing things that never were really into it when they were kids and they just kind of stumbled into it. So I don't want to make a, a blanket statement that you're born right. into it, but I definitely think there are born entrepreneurs who have this in their blood and they can't help themselves. Like when I sold my company, when I turned 27, I thought I could just sit around and surf and become an alcoholic. And that sounded really enticing. And of then, course, but it's not realistic. It didn't work. It, you're going to go bored a, out of your mind. Couple, Just a couple weeks, of, even just a couple days of sitting on the beach in Indonesia, I went traveled to Indonesia, and I'm like, I'm just going to chill here and 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 live the rest of my life uh, as an alcoholic surfer. And like <laughs> three days on the beach, uh, literally was all it took. And yeah, I was you're going bored, right? And I just had to create a company. And I actually ended up running to a local little uh, internet cafe that had like a 14.4k modem in the middle of the jungle, and like registered the domain name for my you know third company, and and was off. It was off to the you know the races. As you're back in it. Back in the game, yeah. And what's interesting, though, is I don't think that it's always based on monetary gain. Like you said, you were 11 years old and you're hustling hot dogs, and obviously you were doing it to make money. But I think there's more to it, though. Don't you think it's a character wiring where you're a nonconformist or an entrepreneur has a hard time of being put in a box and following normal protocol? I do. I do. And, it, and for me, that motivation has shifted over time so as a kid i actually did want to make money because i wanted to buy baseball cards or whatever i was right into that's my time. son now with bike parts and scooter parts yeah exactly everybody you know video games whatever and um and i remember the the thing that sent me into like my first legitimate business was actually a time i was out surfing and i was in uh, i grew up in orange county so i was out in newport and there was like this lull there was no waves coming and i looked back at the beach and I just saw like mansions like all the way along the beach and my parents live like 30 minutes inland so I always had to haul my ass to the yeah. beach every time to surf and it's my I was style like, you know this would be amazing if I could live on the beach and so that for me I was like there's so many houses so many people are living on the beach like why can't I live on the beach like and this? how did they get there yeah exactly how did they get there and I just kind of figured they were all entrepreneurs and and that really spurred me to be like I got to start my own business I want a house on the beach and then fast forward to, as I was talking about the sale of the second company, where actually I had a house on the beach and then I had the money to basically do nothing uh, in life. And that was a great experience for me to go through because sitting on the beach, I literally have a photo of this. It's uh, my hair is like all whacked out. I'm like sunburned. I look like very like bush bohemian dude. Like, right. Like it just kind of like you went gave, off the grid. I gave zero fucks. Yeah. And just let, like let everything just go go to shit. And um, and it felt great because I didn't have all the stress. But this epiphany happened 
where I was sitting there and I was bored and there wasn't much to do. I actually was fortunate because the resort that I was staying at, we were doing boat surf trips like to the Mentawise and there was this um, break in between boat trips where my friends had came for the first two weeks and then they all had jobs. I think it was like 27 at the time. Everybody had to go back to the States. And then the boat captain was like, hey, I got to take the boat to go pick up the next crew. I'll be back in like three or four days. Just hang here. And this was like this half-built resort. There was no uh, electricity. The pool was like no water in it. Um, there was no internet. There was no nothing. It just had like basically food and shelter. And he was like, I got this person. They're going to bring you fish and rice every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and you'll, so you'll be fine. And then four days later, I'll come back. We'll hop on the boat and we'll go on a surf trip. And sure. Like, this sounds great. Dreamy. I got, you know, I got there the first day there was a lot of surf. And then by the second day, the, the swell had gone. So now I'm like sitting by myself. I have no stimuli. I have no electricity. I have no internet, nothing. And so I was literally sitting on the beach all day. Um, and that's when they hit me, you know, that's that epiphany was, you know, I actually, as hard as it was and how much stress it was, all the sort of roller coaster, the ups and the downs that I actually really loved learning and like growing as a person, like developing because all these challenging situations taught me so much. So that was really important to me to be happy. And I wasn't going to be able to do that if I just drank and surf all day. And then the second piece was impact. I realized that I really feel good when I can make a positive impact in somebody's life. Like I remember this guy who worked for me at my second company uh, named Dan Rock and uh, you know he bought a house uh, with the money that he made from the company and he was so happy and so thankful. He's just an awesome dude in general. It, it, I still remember, you know, him coming up and saying thanks to this day. It's and huge, it just, man. It just sunk in. It just made such a positive impact. It gives me, you know, many chills just kind of thinking about it. And so, so I realized those are the two things. I need to be challenging myself so I'm learning and developing and growing. And then I need to be having a positive impact on as many people's lives as possible. The bigger that positive impact, the better, the more happy and more fulfilled I feel. And those two things really drive a lot of the decisions that I made from that point on in my life. And it wasn't about the money anymore. The money is still cool. Like I like making money. It's kind of fun and exciting when you make a lot of money. But and it helps set the bar. Yeah, and it's kind of like keeping score uh, as well. You know, in ways. But that can be dangerous. You got to be careful that slippery, you know, slope. Um, but I'm, you know, I generally have everything I sort of need. And and maybe there's another level where I fly private all the time or something like that. But that just doesn't get me that excited. Getting me what gets me excited is ideas that can have these huge impacts, um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, like the the, the toilet center and stuff like that, or, or the company I'm working on as my day job right now, just to make, um, to turn that into like a billion dollar company that has, you know, a thousand employees and, and just tons of customers. That for me is really thrilling, really exciting, very um, get out of bed in the morning type uh, type stuff. But where did this all start? Where did this all come from though? Let's, go, let's backtrack a little bit. So tell me about your schooling. So I always sucked at school. Okay. <laughs> like really bad, like okay. C's. Um, I was pretty like sort of nerdy. Like what happened? We, we grew up in Michigan. And in Michigan, um, I left there when I was like in, I want to say like um, maybe fourth grade. And so coming from Michigan to California you just you're just a nerd by, by yeah, definition. I get My it. clothes were a little no, bit I get off. It, man. I, and so I struggled, you know, kind of finding good friends and kind of getting into my own. So I was always kind of like. And how old were you at this point? I was, whatever, 
were you in fourth grade? Like nine years okay, old. Okay, so you're like okay because I moved from Long Island when I was fifteen. Yeah. So Long Island, New York, coming to California in the Valley yeah. is fucking polarizing, <laughs> man. Totally scary shit. I'm wearing eyes on at Benetton. <laughs> you know, totally. You know, girls would actually talk to me in Michigan. I got here, and all of a sudden, I was like this nerd, and guys would just you know bully me and stuff. It, sure, it was, it was it was tough. Um, and so school was never something that I really enjoyed. I never really flourished in school. A lot, actually, what I spent a lot of my time on, and this was all the way through high school, was um, was art. I love art, so I used to go and draw like comic book characters and stuff like that for like four or five hours when I get home from school. I get it. You know that and video games, just like that art, artistic stuff. And I think that's that's helpful for the entrepreneur because I still do that, but now I do it with like designing an app or a website or a logo. Because you're building something. You take something from nothing, you create something, and then it's on to the next, and you want to build something new. Yeah, you got to feed that creative creative beast. And I think the cool thing about creativity, it's not like uh, energy or drive, which kind of fades through the day yeah the the creative stuff you do if you're building and being creative that actually just it begets more creativity and begets more creativity and actually is something that can fuel you which is one of the reasons i just love as much of my work as i can make creative the better it's hard to make a lot of it creative because there's always that grind stuff you have to do but if i can mix in creativity uh, it really just kind of helps helps with those energy levels and greed motivation so did you ever have a traditional job like have you ever worked a traditional gig so my parents made me get jobs pretty young and and i thank them for that because it taught me a lot of discipline so i had my first job at am pm when i was 15 okay and uh and i had a crazy boss over there he's just like, literally psychotic so i would like work at am pm and he would like throw quarters at me and like he was really, <laughs> he was crazy my buddy's dad who owned the am pm he eventually got shut down because it was really poorly run but yeah like crappy jobs like that. I worked at AMPM. I worked at, um, I did a lot of server jobs. I worked at Pizza Hut doing delivery. Um, but you never worked for, never worked for a corporation. man or a yeah. corporation. Well, because when I was in college, I started my first company when I was 19. So where'd you go to college? So Point Loma, Nazarene, okay. Uh, okay. you know, here in town. And uh, yeah, I mean, I had that epiphany when I was surfing and that was like literally right before I went to college, the epiphany about, hey, there's so many houses on the beach. Sure. I should get one. Um, and so I went to college, I, I couldn't really figure out much to do, um, in terms of like a legitimate business. And, uh, uh, I actually have a funny story about my first illegitimate business in college. Which is what? So, I had plenty of those. This is a fun one. So I got to college. I was so blown away by, you know, uh, Point Loma. It's right on the beach. There's good surfing. It's like 70% women. I mean, this thing was like... Oh, dude, I know it well. Trail. I get it. Yeah, and, and uh, I was big and smoking weed back then. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had this supplier who would give me weed like from Mexico that was this really bright green kind of like stony weed. And I'd be like, oh... This stuff gets you really hungry. It makes you really happy. Like, this right. is great stuff. But I learned this trick. And I don't remember where I learned it, but you can wrap it in orange peels, wrap it in cellophane, put it in a drawer, and like two or three days later, it sucks all the moisture out of the orange peel and crystallizes the weed. And the weed looks like kind weed rather than the Mexi weed that it Come was. on. And so I would buy it for like $40 an ounce, and I would sell it for, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks or something. That's hysterical. And it, and it was a huge hit. Like, the entire school was buzzing about it. It got so viral that uh, somebody told the dean and the dean came in, you know, to my room and was like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. He was like, I heard you're selling weed. I was like, it's pretty much in every drawer. So yes, I'm not. So you like, owned up to it. Yeah. And he, and yeah, and he, he was actually, this a is friend. a conservative school, very man. conservative. So I got the boot. 
So you did. Yeah. <laughs> oh my they, god. They, they kicked me out. Uh, you know, my parents were like, no, what, what's going on? But I think it was a very entrepreneurial move now looking back, you know, I was getting my, you know, te- you know we would have been friends in cut, college. Cutting my Trust teeth. me, man. I would have just been hanging out with you. That, that would have been my role. You would have loved my dorm room. It was, I knew you. It smelled delicious. I knew you. Um, and so we, so I got kicked out. My parents were really bummed out. Uh, my dad's a pastor. My mom works at a Christian school. So that was, oh big, you know, shit. They, you know, they thought weed was like the, of know, the worst thing on the planet. Anti-Christ. Now it's legal. And Whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. And that's the irony is I don't smoke it. I haven't for like eight years because I can't maybe longer because I can't with with business. Like it just yeah. it sucks the motivation out of me. But back then I didn't really have a lot going on. Sure. Surfing and going to college. It was great. So anyways, uh, they kicked me out. But then uh, a quarter later, I applied to go back in and I you know apologized and, you know, they let me back in, which is really cool. So I come back, uh, you know, now, a which year is later. unheard of. Yeah, they're, they're pretty. uh they're pretty forgiving over there. And I did do like a mission trip. I had to go to like Taiwan yeah. and a mission trip. And then like... And know, it's a private school too. Paid my dues. Yeah. Sure. Um, and my dad, I think maybe maybe had some pull. And so ultimately I get back into college and then I start my first legitimate business, which was, you know, so the next year. Um, and that was uh, selling baby products. Uh, first at like a swap meet, you know, Kobe's swap meet over here. Sure. I didn't know what to do and I saw all these pregnant women and women with babies going into the swap meet and nobody was selling baby products in there. I was I was getting paid $20 an hour to sit out front and pass out flyers for a burger joint called Foggy's Notion. I remember Foggy's. Yeah, Foggy's. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, 20 bucks. I would try to get people to go into Foggy's Notion across the street. And then you recognize this hole. Yeah, I saw all these, all these women and, and so I thought it was a cool idea. I didn't know how to buy baby products and I didn't have any money. Um, so I literally got a credit card at Point Loma. You know, these people would use to sit out there and say, Hey, get a credit card, sure. fill out this form, you know, free pen as well. And so I got like two credit cards for like 1500 bucks. And then I literally saw a truck driving down the road that said, um, you know, distribution, something, something we sell all these products and baby products were listed there. So I followed the truck. I literally show up to this weird, uh, you know, warehouse I don't know what kind of distributor this was, but it was not a well-run organization. The baby products were just covered in dust. Like nobody had bought Come them forever. On. It was like this really From sketchy From the 60s, they're rags. Yeah, they're like, like cloth diapers. <laughs> I, I bought a whole bunch of stuff. Little did I know, it was like basically the same price as like Ralph's. Uh, I thought it was a good price, but it was. And I took it to the swap meet. I you know marked it up. I tried to sell it. Nobody bought it. Nobody. Like it was awful. I think I... Um, didn't even make back the $40 that I spent for Kobe's sure. just to be there uh, the first weekend. And I blew my weekend, so I wasn't making the $20 an hour passing out flyers. So this is like a double uh, sucky weekend. And then, so the next weekend I thought I could expand. And so I went to like a second, air, a second swap meet. I sent my buddy over there and I worked um, Kobe's. Again, we sold nothing. So I started selling the products at below cost and finally sold some and kind of scrapped back together like 300 bucks out of the 500 I'd spent on baby products. I okay. down like a couple hundred bucks. This is and- amazing, by the way. <laughs> Knowing where you are today, this shit is gold, by the way. My you respect know, for you doubled. You know, you got, to, you got to start somewhere. And so I was really kind of down on my luck. I was like really bummed that nothing was working. And I went back home and Dan Rock, the guy I was talking about earlier, he yeah. bought a house. He um, he was a web designer and he was my neighbor and he's like, dude, you need to sell these products on the Internet. And this was like 99 or 2000. I'm like, uh, 
I, I actually didn't know what the internet really was yet, and most people did by then, but my parents, being sort of middle, lower middle class, they sent me to college with a typewriter, yeah, not a computer. And it was like one of those with like the little word processor. Yeah, in my day, that was normal. In yeah. your day, not so much. <laughs> I was pretty geeky, and you know, uh, I could have gone to the library and used their computers, but I never did. So ultimately, I just didn't have a lot of experience with computers. And so I didn't really know a lot about the internet. And he's like, just trust me, let's build a website together. I'm like, okay, how much is it gonna cost? It's like, how much money do you have left? I was like, 300 bucks. He's like, 300 bucks. Sold. I'm like, let's do it. And the funny thing about Dan is he's um, he's in a heavy metal band. And so he wears all purple and black and he has super long hair. I love it. Like down to his butt. And he's like, I'm gonna build you the best website. And my, my company name was Baby's Heaven. And so I pictured he's going to build this cute little website with like little babies' butts and wings and, you know, pinks and blues. Sure. No. He builds a all black website with a gold heavenly gate with like purple flames coming Come out of on. it. And Baby's Heaven is written in like Metallica font. <laughs> Dio font. Baby's Heaven. You know, it's like, I'm like, Dan, this is not a good match to our target demographic. Uh, but he was like, no, trust me, this thing will work. And everything was uh, pretty you bad. You stuck with it? Uh, I, I didn't have a choice. I mean, he'd already invested. I'm dying. You know, so That's amazing. <laughs> it was pretty bad. So no unicorns, rainbows, or pillows? None of that cute stuff. It was just like Devil babies. horns. It's like maybe this was a baby's heaven where like dead babies are. You know, it was like dark and mysterious. Oh, like, that's a riot. So Ozzy's baby. It was. It was. He, he dug it. And did it work? No. Nobody bought shit. It was awful. And I'm more depressed now because nothing's working. The second go around, and uh, another neighbor I went and talked to, this guy named Catfish. Uh, I'm living in OB at the time, by the way. I moved out of the dorms. I'm living on, on Spray Street, right in the war zone of OB. And my neighbor, Catfish, everybody's kind of characters down there, you know, like unique, yeah, unique people. Of course. And he happened to like make some money doing internet marketing, and he told me this little tip. He said, You need to go find somebody who's uh, got a whole bunch of moms and, and you know, mm-hmm people coming in who are pregnant, but they don't do what you do. They don't sell what you do. And, right. and you got to partner with them and get them to link to you. And I'm like, okay. And not knowing any better, I just went to Huggies and said, hey, what's up? Uh, you know, Huggies only sells diapers by the truckload. And I was like, hey, why don't you guys link to me? Um, I sell your Huggies diapers uh, over to the internet and I'll just ship them to people. And, you know, would you like be cool with that? And they actually responded. You know, this is back in 2000 now, I think. I was going to say, It wouldn't man. have happened today, probably. Oh, hell no. Then. It worked, and they're like, send me a banner. And I'm like, cool. I'm like, what's a banner? I went to Dan. I'm like, I need a banner. He's like, all right, let me design one. And this time, I'm like, dude, pink, blue, baby, butts, wings. Right. Like, come on, let's go. Let's cute. Let's cute this. So he did. He made a nice, cute one. And we put it up there. And I'll never forget it. Like, two hours later, after it went live, I got my first order. Oh, my like God. like, $300 worth of Huggies diapers. And I was like, fuck yeah. Like, finally, it worked. We broke through. Like, we got our first order. I was so ecstatic. It was actually one of, like, my favorite moments as an entrepreneur. And even though there's been much bigger moments and selling companies and all that good stuff, it was just like that breakthrough. I'll never forget selling my first beanie. Right? Yeah. And you just, you just, like, it's it might work, you know? I know. It just feels so good. And I think it feels even better when it just starts so shitty. And there's just all these problems that go on. And then you hit it. 
if you just hit it right away, it's like it doesn't work you don't that appreciate way. It. And it never no. seems to work that way. It's like the universe is always makes you wait for it, makes you work for it, holds it out. I'm in the middle of that now, yeah. man. I'm in the middle of that struggle and that fight right now, yeah. and I know it's the universe testing me because yep. I won't walk away from it. Yep. I won't walk away from it. It's Not good. when you have companies like Barstool Sports trying to launch sub-products called you, and I'm having to hire attorneys. It's yep. like, no, man, I know I've got something, but the struggle is the hardest part to endure. The struggle's real, and, and it's always there. It never seems to be easy. Even at your, even where you are today, you see, you still feel the struggle the oh same God. as you did back in the diaper days. One hundred percent, exactly the same. I'm twenty years in now. Uh, it's just bigger challenges, but the struggle's still there. So now we're trying to build a company worth a billion dollars. That company, I was just trying to get to maybe a hundred thousand right? or a million. Uh, now we're trying for the big B and it's, I have a, I have a chart that shows, uh, empire and over the last seven years, so we're seven years in right now, uh, we have had, uh, eight near death experiences. And what that means is that we were within months, if not weeks of running out of capital and having to shut the whole thing down. Really? And if we didn't raise money, we would die. And, uh, Elon Musk describes this really great. He says, it's like eating glass and staring into the abyss of death. Because you're basically, you see your death of your company just a couple weeks away. Um, you know that the only way to survive is to like pull out some miracle. So you have to eat glass, meaning do a lot of shitty work, grind, grind, grind to try to find somebody to lend you the money or, or close a deal that's going to get you over the, over the hurdle. And so you just have to kill yourself to get there. Um, and then you, you know, and we did, and we would raise money and we would pop back up and we'd yep. be back into a good spot. We'd have another, you know, few months or six months to try to figure it out. Oop, we didn't quite figure it out, you know, and we'd bounce, bounce under again. I think for the first time ever, we are, you know, we're doing our series C right now. Um, you know, we've had tremendous growth over the last two years and it's totally hockey sticking right now. So we're in a really, we're in a really good spot and we just have to do this one last round and then we'll be profitable. Um, and so we're almost out of the woods. And once you get out of the woods, all of a sudden you're like profitable as a company. Um, you just face different challenges. You know, I just feel like there's never a dull moment as an entrepreneur. It never yeah. gets to the point where you can coast. Yeah. Sometimes you think you're at the coasting zone and if you coast for too long, That's you, you end up in a shit storm. Exactly. Right. You kind of always have to be on edge and always hustling to like, to just do your best and put your best energy forward and your best effort. Because if you don't, like you can see it all the time, plenty of really big, successful, profitable companies that just get eaten alive by the startups. It's like this constant world of survival of the fittest. And initially you're just fighting against yourself to you know live. And then after you actually build something, then you're fighting against tons of other people who want to eat your pie. You're so, right? oh, that's so fascinating. <laughs> totally. Now uh, tell me about the first time you experienced real, real profound success. I'm talking next level shit. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely, you know, the night we sold uh, Client Shop. Okay. And, you know, I, I'll never forget it. Like the, the bank account, the check hit the bank account. And I finally had, you know, all these extra zeros. Um, and I'd always been just sort of right at the cusp of sort of able to pay for things, but never had, like, was never saving money. Right. And sometimes I would not be able to buy things. I was kind of living paycheck to paycheck, even though I was an entrepreneur. Sure. Um, and it wasn't until that check hit that I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is such a game changer. And and this is a little bit before I took that trip to Indonesia. So, so I had about six months to work 
for the company that acquired us to help them transition everything. Got it. And that six months was, I guess, the first time that I was actually able to like relax after the first six years of, of being an entrepreneur. And uh, and it was relaxing. I mean, that weekend, I remember, I took the whole team and we went to um, like a like a retreat. We just went to go have some fun. It was, I forget exactly where it was, but it was basically on a golf course. I was kind of into golfing and a bunch of my team members were as well. And I'll never forget it. Like I walked into the golf store and I was like, carrying my set of golf clubs that I bought at Walmart for like 120 bucks, you know, like four years ago. And they were all beat up and janky. And I'm like, I'm going to buy a new driver. And I yeah. looked at drivers and like, you know, 300 bucks. I would never spend 300 bucks on a driver before that. And I was like, I'm just going to buy the most expensive driver there is. Oh, $400. You know, like, <laughs> oh, I'm crazy. You know, I'm going nuts. And I remember buying it. It was like, I don't know, Big Bertha or something. And it was so cool to be able to spend that kind of money, which I just never had done before. And how old were you at this point? 27. 27. And the company that you sold did, what What was the function of the company? So the company we sold was to help people find good rates on home loans okay. on the internet. And so we had a website called Four Low Rates and you would fill out a form telling us a little bit about yourself, what kind of loan you're looking to get. And then we would take that information and we would, you would fill it out for free, we'd take it and sell it to up to four banks they would compete to get you the best rate on your home loan. Very similar to Lending Tree, if you ever heard of those guys. Sure. Um, yeah, and then, and you know that company started the day after I sold the baby company. I started that that business and just used all the sort of wisdom I'd gained in the first company uh, to you know basically to make that one grow super fast. And what made you pivot into that industry? Do you remember at the yeah, time? Yeah, I do actually. It was an interview that I had with um, someone who was coming in to apply for the baby company. And they came in and they'd just come from someone uh, from an insurance lead generation shop. So basically they had the same thing but for insurance. And they explained to me how it works. We have people fill out this form for insurance and then we sell it to four insurance brokers who compete to get that person the best rate. Got it. And I was like, that's freaking cool. Like there's no... There's no like storing baby products. Like you don't have to walk through Costco with like a tower full of baby products like I have to every week. And uh, and you can just like, you're basically selling information. And I was like, that's really interesting. But I kind of put it on hold. And then once we sold the company, I was like, this is the business I want to. And how much did you sell it for at the time? The baby company? The tech company. Client shop. Client shop. Yeah. So they don't let me say. So technically I'm not allowed to. But it was... Uh, it was good enough to be life-changing to the sense where I could go and surf and drink pina coladas all day if that's all I wanted to do. Right. Um, but I probably couldn't buy, you know, some crazy massive jet and, you know, the crazy kind of lifestyle. But it could have could you buy a, retired. Could you buy a house on the coast with an ocean view yes. and walking distance to the surf? Yes. Yeah. It didn't go past me that I had actually, like, just you know, six years earlier had that vision or seven years earlier had that vision that I wanted to, you know, live on the beach. And here I was money in the bank, living on the beach. And I'll tell you, there's some days I remember in that time frame where I just like sat on my couch and I was just like, fuck yeah. Like, yeah. so happy. I made it like, this is amazing. Like, this feels so good. And I can relate to that in a sense, because at the same age, that's when I landed the uh, this morning show gig at 91X, yeah. which was a pinnacle of my career. Now, I, I was also, when I started there, making, I think, 50 to 65 grand a year. 
but from my vantage, I had made it to the level that you made it. You were killing it. I was crushing it. Man. I remember that. I was a fan. I, but, li- I listened to your show all the time. It was great. But my point is, though, is that it's funny how we define our level of success. And I'm sure looking back relative. now, yeah, you'd look at it and go, wow, I, di- I didn't make it, man. I had so much to learn. Well, what happened for me was, you know, this was the time at which I, th- I thought I'd made it, like you said. And, you know, that I had those moments where I was sitting there going like, this is amazing. But that's where the interesting sort of shift started to happen, uh, where every day you walk out onto that porch and you look out at the beach and you're like, I made it. It gets a little less cool than it was the day before or the very first day that it happened. And so as the months go by and the year go, years go by, all that material stuff sort of loses a little bit of its luster, right? Yeah. Pretty soon you get accustomed to living in a nice house on the beach. Pretty soon you get accustomed to driving the fancy car. Pretty soon you get accustomed to not worrying about paying your bills. And all of that stuff that we think, oh, if I can just get over that hump, if I can just get that nice house or I can just get my bills paid for, it's all going to be, you know, okay. What happens is your brain just slowly shifts to other problems. Like, and, and you just stop caring about some of those, you know, again, bill paying or material possessions. Yeah. And eventually after like three or four years of living in that house, that I dream house, like I was ready to move and check out another place. And, you know, it had some mold in the garage. So that kind of sucked. And there was like all the, all these other challenges with it. And it just kind of like, they say it and I know it's kind of cliche, but it's true. Like all that stuff you think you really want in terms of materialist is amazing at first and it really is and i was super happy so yes money can buy happiness but it was in a temporary sense and after a few years it just didn't really shine through and that's why i'm really glad i had that experience i talked about where i was on the beach and, and then you know had that mental shift where i was like okay i actually know how to create happiness and fulfillment long term and that's by figuring out what i'm you know, put here on earth to do, so to speak, where's my talents at? And let's just take those talents and like develop them. Cause I actually feel really fulfilled when I'm like challenged and learning and growing. And especially if it's something I'm learning and growing that I really uh, enjoy doing, like for me, it's being an entrepreneur. So if I'm getting better at being an entrepreneur, that that's fulfilling. And then the impact that the company can have also incredibly fulfilling, right? If I know I'm working on something that's making the world a better place in a meaningful way, the size of that impact is really feels good. And the bigger the impact, the more exciting it gets. Also gets a little scary. Sure, <laughs> man. You know, sort of got double-edged sword there. But yeah, I think, you know, now I'm pushing myself to see like, what can we, what can I build with, you know, this sort of talent and how big can that impact get and how good can I get as an entrepreneur and how big can all this get? Like what, you know, where does this go if I just put all my effort and energy into developing myself and pushing myself? It'd be really interesting to see. And that, that just changed everything for me. And it's no longer about material stuff. Um, and it's all about that, that impact and that learning and, and growing. What about failure on the flip side? It wasn't like I had that flip of mindset and then everything was like roses. Right. I wish I could say. And then I drifted happily ever after into the sunset and, you know, everything was good. But no, I mean, life has been a constant roller coaster ever since. Um, and I think that, you know... There are times where I go, fuck, I should just retire and go back to the beach in Indonesia and, and just surf all day. Like, what was I thinking? Um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it never ends. There's never a time where you're able to kind of like coast for very long. 
And if you are pushing yourself, yeah, it's just kind of some law of the universe. I'm not sure exactly why it always ends up this way, but I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about this, very successful ones, ones much more successful than I am in sort of the billion dollar range. And they all say the same thing. Like there are periods where you can coast for maybe a couple of weeks or a couple months where things go pretty well and everything's running kind of smoothly. <laughs> and then there's some major challenge that you face that is requires you to put in a lot more effort than is comfortable that causes you to get very stressed, um, causes you to just, you know, as Elon Musk puts it, eat glass and stare into the abyss of death. Right. And it doesn't matter, you know, like it could be initially in, a, in the start of the business all about like, am I going to make it? Is this business going to succeed or am I going to die? And then all of a sudden you could get to profitability and have, you know, 500 employees and suddenly it's no longer if you're going to die or not. It's like, am I going to make my numbers so we can IPO, you know, in, yeah. in a year or is my board going to fire me? <laughs> you know, just the problems just keep, they never end. They actually probably even get bigger and sort of more meaningful as you grow. And I think that's hard for a lot of early stage entrepreneurs to see because a lot of times we're just like, I just need to get to profitability or I just need to make enough cash to pay my employees because if I don't, I'm dead. And they think if they just get over that hump, everything gets better. But ultimately, this lifestyle is a very, is a constantly challenging lifestyle. Yeah, it's not for the weak. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> and I would imagine you have to practice amazing self-discipline. Yes. And also know how to detach. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, in order to make it through all that, and, and that's sort of a half, glass half empty way to look at it. Um, at the same time that you're having all these challenges, you typically come out the other side when you've really dedicated yourself to it and, and hopefully it works out this way. It doesn't always, but a lot of times you come out the other side, you win. And and that's why they call it the roller coaster, right? Because when you're in that dark, sort of shitty time where you're not sort of coasting, right? And it's, you know, down in the depths and it's really, you know, hard and and that's eating glass turning the best. When you come back out of that and you you survive and you actually win whatever that challenge was, you beat that challenge, it is incredibly fulfilling. And in some cases, like there's nothing better on earth than you know winning, and, th- and those are the big wins you get. Like maybe you sell the company or go public, right? You know, sitting up there on Nasdaq and ringing that bell, <laughs> ask you know those people what it felt like, especially if they've been grinding for ten years or fifteen years or twenty years. Probably the longer they've been grinding, the better that feels, right? So a lot of this you know challenge that we're going through actually is equally balanced with feelings of elation and you know just fulfillment when you when you win on the other side so it's just this constant up and down but that doesn't go away with millions of dollars in your bank tens of millions of dollars in your bank even billions i think if we asked elon musk right now with 20 billion dollars in his bank account he was just sleeping on the couch at tesla trying to get through this production hurdle on the model threes and wall street is crucifying him and he's the most shorted stock on the planet so there's a lot of people that don't believe in him. Yep. A lot of people that do believe in him, but a lot of people that don't. He's probably pretty freaking miserable. I was going to say, I'm sure I sleep better at night right now than Elon Musk. Exactly. And he's got 20 billion bucks in the bank and he could just go and, you know, sit on the beach and, you know, become an alcoholic. But he doesn't because he's driven. He wants to, you know, solve mankind's problems. And I think true entrepreneurs are sort of born with this inherent need to yeah. make this impact and and constantly grow and change and evolve. And if they're not, they're not happy. And if they are, even in these miserable times, they're not going to give up because they just, they have to solve this problem. They have to get to this next stage. But where do you find your biggest struggles? And, and I'm not talking about hitting numbers or 
impressing the board or making sure that you're creating a, a great work environment for this amazing staff I see in front of me. I'm just talking more on a baseline, just this is an area where I think I could do better. I think for me that probably goes into the personal side of my life because as an entrepreneur, you you are always making sacrifices to get to that next level. And the bigger your dreams and the bigger impact you want to make, a lot of times that requires bigger sacrifices. Like I hate to be just Elon fanboy all day today, but I do <laughs> appreciate the guy a lot. I mean, oh, I love the guy and I'm not in, I'm not in your industry. <laughs> <laughs> he's easy to love because he's just doing such cool shit, but he is, uh, you know, he's made a lot of personal sacrifices and he works crazy crazy hours and he's just one example of you know trying for such an ambition ambitious dream i think he has seven companies or something now uh that that you know it's hard to keep a marriage together it's hard to uh be with your kids as much as you want to it's hard to be with your friends as much as you want to you know i'm not married but i have a lot of friends that i love a lot and it is so hard for me to be a good friend yeah because i am i have so much going on inside my brain you know even when i'm hanging out with them i want you know being present 100 percent and not yeah. letting my brain go to shit how what do i do with that problem my cfo just quit yesterday and i've got to find a new one and if i don't my board's gonna fire me and, like i've got all these like crazy uh complicated problems sure that i'm dealing with and, and it's a 24 7 thing as an entrepreneur it never shuts off yep and so you know being present and then also you know carving out the time to be with friends is uh and family and loved ones it's just so uh challenging i think that's the part that i always struggle with there's like sort of this guilt like am i doing it right you know yeah. am i dedicating enough time to my relationships that i am to my companies and do i have the good balance there and i think that just is this thing that's never perfect it's always sort of ebbing and I flowing agree. right sometimes i feel like i'm doing a great job maybe almost too much time spent with friends and family and people i love and then you're letting your business and down then, and then my business is already, it's like, <laughs> i know <laughs> you know it's like you're, it's like it. you're the spinning all the plates you know and you're just trying to keep them all spinning and i've, I've heard entrepreneurs um very successful ones who you can tell they didn't get the balance right and they're like later in their life and they're you know billionaire or whatever and they are just saying you know man shit i fucked up my family doesn't love me anymore i didn't take enough spend enough time with my kids yeah i um you know i kind of failed tell me about empire what's what's the story with uh this operation it's certainly impressive walking in and i know you've been involved for years now tell me about it so yeah so empire is uh, used to be mogul uh, so some San Diegan people may remember Mogul. It's a restaurant rewards program, gives you cash back. Uh, the magic of it was it works off of any debit or credit card. So you link up the card to the app and then and then you could use it at all these restaurants around town and get 10% cash back or something like that. And you wouldn't have to show anything. You could walk into the restaurant I remember. and pay and like automatically get something. Uh, and it just really gets rid of coupons, punch cards, having to show a phone app. You don't have to do any of that, right? It's so easy. A lot of times you would actually, you know, pay at a restaurant and then you would get an alert from Mogul being like, hey, you just turned 10% cash back. You're like, oh shit, I didn't even know this place was on. It was so easy. I remember. And so what we've done uh, is we've taken that technology and we've now um, turned it into a platform. Uh, technical term for it is we built an API, uh, application programming interface, that allows other people to build Mogul-like experiences. So now we've built a program called Yelp Cashback. So if you use Yelp, you will see Yelp cash back in the app or on the website. You link up your card to Yelp and same thing. You go around 
to now we have over 10,000 restaurants uh, around the country, uh, as well as a whole bunch of national brands like Starbucks and that sort of thing. And you just pay with your credit card and instantly earn cash back. And it all comes from Yelp or appears to come from Yelp, but we power uh, that whole program. And there's probably about 30 or 40 websites and apps that we power, a bunch of really cool ones coming out. Um, you'll see a cashback program in Uber if you look in there. Yeah. Yeah, we don't power that one, but our merchants will start showing up in there. Uh, a lot of people are getting into card-linked offers, as they're known today, okay. which is just, again, linking a card and then and then paying because it's just easier. Again, easier than coupons and punch cards. So it's kind of the future. Everything's kind of moving towards using, using data, and, that, and that's what we do. We have relationships with Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. So we can, once you opt in, we can track your transactions automatically for you, give you your reward automatically. You don't have to do anything. You just opt in and link up your card and then you're, you know, sort of in the program. So that's, you know, been around for six or seven years. We, you know, as you can see in here, we've got about 50 people. And uh, this year we're, we're raising our Series C and we're going to grow to about 100 people. Um, and we're trying to become, you know, our, one of our goals, among many others, is to become one of San Diego's next unicorns, as they call it, the company worth a billion dollars, you know, or more is uh, gets the magical unicorn title. And so that's one of the things we really think is possible. I mean, this has been the last, uh, yeah, using that terminology, what was the last San Diego unicorn? Um, so I think active was uh, pretty close to, if not at a billion at one point. Is that skin products? No, active was the... Or the sports? Yeah, sports, like it's software for sports. Sports, so basically roadrunner sports. Events. That's right. Um, you know, you could mostly events, the uh, marathons stuff. and yeah. the five Ks. That's yeah. right. If you're signing up for any of those online, you're probably using software from Active, Got and it. they branched out from sports to other industries as well, even government and stuff like that. But um, that's one of the ones uh, we actually just hired somebody from another unicorn here in town called Lytix, and Lytix used to be called DriveCam. Um, and same kind of story there. In fact, our, our COO now, Brian, he came from that company we started. They were, you know, doing uh, 30 or 10 million or something in revenue, maybe worth like 30 million. And, and then, you know, 12 years later, they were worth one and a half billion. What? And uh, doing like 250 million in revenue. And uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of these times that it happens in San Diego. And I always try to like pull employees over from those companies and bring them over here so they can bring all that experience with them, help us to do the same thing. But that's, uh, yeah, that's the path that we're on. And How much money have you raised? And just to the layman, what is that process like? Yeah, so as of today, Empire has raised uh, $50 million, Okay. And which... It's so weird to me. Like it seems like not that much money when I say it now, but I remember like ten years ago you would have told me fifty million. I've been like, oh, I almost fell out of my <laughs> my couch here. That's that's pretty insane from my vantage, but I know it's a it's a different world. It's all relative, right? I mean, right. The startups nowadays are raising you know, hundreds of millions, some of them even billions. It's just crazy what's going on, um, and how fast it's sort of growing. But yeah, so we raised fifty million for my for that amount of money. How we did it actually has been quite a good learning lesson for me and also has diversified sort of my fundraising capabilities. So when we started, we raised 2.4 million from Avalon here in town, which is one of our um, few VC firms, perhaps arguably maybe the one true, you know, um, institutional VC firm. They've been around for 30 years. We've got nine funds. Um, and they put the money in. Literally, I had a talk I gave on gamification. And this was coming off of some success of selling client shops, so I had a little bit of a reputation in town, but uh, but not quite you know where it was today. But Steve heard the talk. We sat on a panel, Q and A stuff. We said, "Hey, let's grab some lunch." 
because I knew he was from Avalon and I, I knew we'd love to have Avalon uh, investing. And we sat down and I told him the concept. We're going to basically gamify, you know, eating out at restaurants and um, and we're going to use card linking technology and showed him the, the early product. It hadn't launched yet. He just, he got it right away. So this was the mogul days. This or this mogul, is, yeah. Okay. So that was the Series A for mogul was literally, you know, that was the first venture capitalist that we met with. Got it. And they, you know, you know, gave us a verbal on the spot. Now then we had to do deep due diligence and, you know, Avalon's very thorough on that side. So... Luckily, everything was in order. The product was as good as I said it would be, and uh, and you know, and everything checked out. Due diligence, so, so they gave us the capital. Nine months later, we were growing, you know, sixty percent month over month after we launched. So the product was a pretty big hit, especially in San Diego. I think we had a couple other cities like LA, and uh, and then I had to go raise another, you know, seven million or whatever we were going to raise. And that one, I had to interview and meet with probably twelve to fifteen VCs, yeah. a bigger round, and. Uh, you know, didn't really know what I was doing. In fact, the last two rounds I'd had before that, I did one round for the company previous. The first VC I met with in both cases invested. So <laughs> we didn't really have a lot of process. And then this and then this Series B, we had a lot of process, maybe even more than 15 VCs. Probably met with 12 to 15, but probably initially pitched more like 20 or 25. And do you go into these meetings alone? Do you bring a team with you? You know... I like to go alone or I don't mind going alone. Yeah. If I have a team that I want to bring with me, I do like the thing for me is if you really are passionate about your business and you love it, you know so much about it. You're just constantly learning ever since the time you first had the idea, which by the way, you were probably super optimistic about your business uh, and super excited about it. And then, just, <laughs> and then you learn more and more about it. You lose a lot of that optimism and you're like, this is actually a really fucking hard business. Like, I understand. It's, it's going to be really hard to scale this thing. Yes. I had no idea what I was getting into living it. Yeah. But by the time you get to that point where you actually understand your business, you actually understand it so that the VC who's coming in fresh, even the really, really smart ones. And I love sitting down with, you know, the best of the best. They'll drill you and you know it. So it's like, it's actually a really good exercise to go through. I find it, it does one of two things. Either I come out of there like, I just show that we really know our business and this is a good chance for us to get you know funding or th those guys really challenge me. They ask questions that I actually hadn't thought about. And so now I'm gonna go back and understand that part of my business. And so I've just like learned a very valuable lesson. Yeah. And maybe I, maybe I blew it with them because I didn't you know, know, but Chances are I probably didn't. I think a lot of times VCs like when you can admit that you don't know everything and that you need to go back and get the answers, especially when you know most of the answers. Like if you have to do that on everything, you're like, I don't know, let me get back to you. Uh, they're probably it's going to look sketchy. <laughs> That's not a good thing. But you know, it's okay if 10 or 20% of the you know questions they answer, you're just really honest and say, look, I, I just don't know that, but let me get that back to you. So, so yeah, that whole process was amazing. I'll never forget it. You know, the, 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 the Guys who eventually invested in us, which was Sigma Ventures, which is now Jackson Square, they flew out to meet with a bunch of restaurant owners. And this was the most recent? This was, no, this was like 2012. Oh, okay. This is a Series B. Okay. And uh, they met with all the restaurant owners uh, that we had on board. Like, I think they met with like six or seven. We kind of were walking around town doing the interviews, and I didn't know how everything was going. I was hoping it all went really well. And then literally, he's like, let's go grab a drink at a bar. And we sit down at a bar, and he slides across the table a term sheet inside of a like a folded manila envelope and i was like is this really happening right now and i opened it up and he's like here's you know eight million dollars what Here, here's the terms you know here's everything you know uh, you know my job was if i came down here and i liked the answers we got from the restaurant owners we were going to do the deal and i like all the answers i got and so 
here's the deal. And he explained, he was really nice, he explained all the terms because there's all these like Perry Pursue and all this like term, terms inside of a term sheet that, you know, were fairly new to me. Um, you know, that was Pete Solvik over there. He's, he's been a great board member ever since. And, and it was really kind of like a magical moment where it was like really intense. And the way he just did the whole thing was like just hearing it's a freaking intense. movie. It was like so cool. And then, I mean, obviously was super excited going back to the team. And we actually, once we got that term sheet, we got a whole bunch of other interest from other strategics and stuff. And so the round actually ballooned from 7 million up to 12 million. Um, you always have to get kind of that first term sheet going and then, and then things go, go really well. And that was sort of my series B and that was, so we had about 15 million in total funding. And were you profitable at this point? Oh no. So you're still raising millions upon millions selling the dream. This is yeah. fascinating to me. Well, I think we were losing, you know, eight, 800,000 a month, something like that. Really? Yeah. It was like, well, actually, you know, maybe we hadn't hit that burn yet. Now I think about it. No, we hadn't. That wasn't until the next year. So maybe we're just losing a couple hundred thousand or so a month, but we had no plans to become profitable anytime soon. We were going to take that money and build out the sales team and scale to other cities. Got it. And probably lose money for the foreseeable future. And that's pretty standard with the series B. Okay. You know, usually, in fact, nowadays it feels like most tech companies aren't profitable all the way through to going public. Yeah. Um, and it's almost hard to value a company that is profitable because <laughs> the markets aren't used to seeing it. It's usually just about you know creating shareholder value, and that means growing, 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 growing. Yeah. So that was the first 15 million. So then now we've raised another 35 cents. This is when things got really interesting. So what we were trying to do as a business was to grow as fast as possible. But also, we needed to make a model that was sustainable. And our model consisted of, we had to sign up businesses, and then we had to sign up consumers. And there was a cost, a marketing cost or a sales cost to each of those. And so when we raised the money, sort of, you know, end of year one, we had a cost to acquire a business, I think, was something like $1,500. Like, that's the salesperson all in, the sales manager, all the cost, the commissions, just to get a restaurant onto Mogul. Right. And then on the consumer side, I think it was something like 10 bucks or something to get a consumer to come to our website or app and link up a card. Our entire mission now was, hey, grow those numbers as quick as you can, but drop the actual cost to acquire a restaurant or to acquire a user to where it drops into a range where you have an actual business model that will sustain itself. Yeah. Right? And so I think we had to get the user cost down to like two bucks or three bucks, and I think we needed to get the business acquisition costs of like 600 bucks or something. And then it would all make sense. And so for the next two years, it was just trial and error on every kind of marketing or sales tactic. We, we had an outside team. We took them all inside to do, you know, do phone sales. And that dropped the cost from like 1200 to 800. And then on the consumer side, we had like kiosks inside of all the restaurants. If you remember those. Yep. Uh, and that would get people to sign up. So we stopped using promo girls, which was like our early, yep. early uh, technique. Bus sides. Yeah, totally. We just or the RTD or the bus stops. Yeah, we do. We did billboards. I remember my dog Mojo was all over PB. That was kind of fun. Um, so you know, billboards went away, promo girls went away, and then you know, and then it was kiosks. Uh, robots took all the humans' jobs, as I like to joke. Uh, and we still couldn't get the cost down into that range. And I think while we were constantly focused on this, that's when the idea came up. Of, you know what? We should become a platform. If we become a platform and we allow others to do what we're doing. Uh, we, we don't have any acquisition cost of mm. consumers, right? If Yelp comes in and Yelp signs up all their users, there's no acquisition cost to us. And on the same side, on the business side, uh, we can bring we can allow people to bring businesses onto our platform. And uh, again, there's no acquisition cost. And if everybody shares all the businesses, all the offers, 
then we all kind of grow together and this platform scales and it has a network effect. Got it. And Rather you know, than you doing all the heavy that's lifting exactly yourself. Right. So that aha moment came, which seems awesome and makes a lot of sense, but it's also known as a pivot when you change, you know, your business model. Like a thousand that, percent. Right. And a pivot is scary for venture capitalists. So when I went out and tested the waters, time to raise our series C, um, we're going to change the whole business model. And we have no customers on this new business model. And name. <laughs> but and we're probably going to change the name. Uh, would you like to put in, you know, 15 or $20 million? You know, that's, that's a tough sell. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's an impossible sell. So instead of doing, you know, going the whole VC route, we decided to go instead um, to angels and to strategics and basically smaller non-institutional groups that will fund something like that. And so literally I had to go to like every angel group meeting in the country. It felt like probably pitched something like 700 people. And we now have 120 investors that have put money into the company over the past three years because we had to raise enough money to get the pivot executed, get our first customers on board, get the revenue from those first customers. And then we can go out to institutional investors. So it was like really creative fundraising. We did have a couple institutionals that came in throughout that period. Um, so it wasn't all angels. And we actually had some really fun investors. Like we have Aaron Rodgers uh, came on. No way. Yeah, we hung out for like an hour in the conference room pitching him the idea. He loved it. Are you kidding? Uh, you know, Phil Mickelson, um, Ryan Sheckler. Like, How does that happen? It's just because you'll hold like some type of investor conference or you present to a group and they all come out? How does you, that happen? You know, um, well, first of all, I've never had success hosting my own investor conference. Okay. I don't know why, but that doesn't work. So I always go to other people's investor conference, like Tech Coast Angels. They put a couple million bucks in. They have their, their like dinner and you go and you pitch to like 40 people and maybe like five invest. Once you get a couple of investors, a lot of times you can spread out to others, yeah. especially if you need more money. They're going to help you find money once they're invested because they want to see their investment succeed. So, so do you report to all these 120 people? What I do is I do a, uh, I do a quarterly um, pitch, which is basically uh, not a pitch, like an update. And it just in there, I try to give as much information as I can on the business. And then um, from there, it goes to uh, some people call me, but not a lot. I think I've like our investors are great. They're really respectful of my time. They want to see me succeed. There's not a lot that reach out. I would say. So Aaron's not hitting you up right no, now. No, no. <laughs> um, you know, two. Phil or three, asking you to bring yeah. out that big Bertha you bought, which would be awesome. <laughs> I would totally go if those guys called. But yeah, they, I'm sure they have tons of angel investments, and this is. I don't even know if they, you know, know this one if you if you told them about it. But they, uh, but you know, I would I would absolutely go if uh, if they called. And no, just a couple inquiries a quarter. It's actually not that bad. And we've set up all the structures so that they don't like individually they can't cause issues. You know, if yeah. one of them's like, I want to block this next round, they can't. You know, right? It's just the majority investor in every round uh, gets that voting right. So we have now a handful of sort of people that are actually have, you know, voting control over, you know, our next round and stuff like that. So we, we structured it right so that it doesn't cause potential issues. And it, it worked out because here we are today, our revenue growth is explosive. It's like this totally like hockey stick. Congrats, Everything, man. Thanks, bud. Everything we thought was going to happen, uh, it is happening. 
uh, we show people the revenue numbers and that's just the pivot happened two and a half years ago. And they're like, you guys are generating this much revenue today. So with that pivot, that's when you went and rebranded as Empire. And then we got, you know, Living Social and Coupons.com. And then we started getting bigger guys like Yelp and now Uber. And like, you know, it just kept like growing and growing and growing to bigger and bigger partnerships and bigger and bigger, um, you know, revenue being generated from those guys. And we're still really just getting started. So which is why we think we have that shot. You know, at the to billion. go for this next round. Yeah, and and you know what's interesting about that? I think it's going to make a great story because we're kind of coming out of our pivot, and I think we're going to get, you know, great valuation on this next round. We feel really good about it. Um, there was about seven times where we almost ran out of capital, and when I say almost ran out, I mean like within three months we would be dead if we didn't raise more money. Within the last couple and of years, some of them, yeah, some of them went all the way up to like you know weeks or even days, uh, and I think that's like you know. It's going to make for a great story, inspiring story, because I think entrepreneurs end up in that spot a lot. And it's always good to know that you're not alone in the fact that you're, you know, dealing with that kind of stress. Elon talked about a story where he had, you know, 24 hours worth of capital left. Same with the CEO from Evernote. He was going to close down the company the next morning and he got an email in the middle of the night that the guy funded him. And then he, you know, now Evernote's a billion dollar company. Like this happens a lot. And I think, you know, you can't be faint of heart. You got to not give up. You got to have that ability to just uh, believe and stay, you know, stay on course and work your ass off. Uh, and that's actually what it means by eating glass and staring into the abyss of death. It means that you're doing the work you don't want to do, the hardest work, yep. which is like begging for money in most cases. And uh, you're going to die in, you know, two months. So you can actually see the abyss of death. Like you can see the end is near. You're like, if I don't do this right now, I, it's not, I'm not going to make it. And that's hard. That's really, really, really hard to make it through those times. And like I said, I think we've had seven or eight of those, you know, in our life cycle. But thankfully, we're, you know, it's like the plane like flying straight towards the cliff. We've skipped off the ground a couple times and just almost crashed. And now yeah, we're finally getting altitude. And it's so profound. And we'll end here because your time is so valuable. And I thank you, John. But it's so profound to hear you talk this way because I think so many of us can relate to this, whether you're Elon Musk yourself and what you've got going on here or people out there who are working paycheck to paycheck to keep things alive and moving forward. And you don't, you see that end, but you're still, you find that the energy and the drive and the passion to keep powering forward, man. And I'll tell you, just listening to you speak, you're a freaking tiger, dude. You're an effing tiger. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I'm telling you. I appreciate your time and wish you nothing but continued success. And I look forward to watching your trajectory over the next couple of years. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. This is a, it's a pleasure. I love you know sharing the story. And uh, like I said, I've been a fan of yours since the Chris Cantori show on 91X Dope, back in dude. the day. Because my other question, can I borrow some money, man? <laughs> I'm here to ask you. I need a little funding for you media, just a quarter mil. I'm good, bro. You. I'll get you into concerts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Free beer, weed. <laughs> Right on, man. That's uh, that's the real deal. That's a real entrepreneur right there. Uh, John Carter, thank you for being a guest here on Cantori and You. And if you'd like to be a guest or have a suggestion, uh, feel free to email me. I love talking to people. They just need to be cool and fascinating, okay? It's, uh, it's Cantori, because I'm not. It's Cantori, C-A-N-T-O-R-E, at you, Y-E-W-Online.com. Thank you again to all our sponsors uh, from Tory Holistics, 
to uh, BajaBound.com, to the Scooter Farm, South Coast Surf Shops. Who else do I want to throw props to? Mariposa Ice Cream, Normal Heinz, two locations, Normal Heinz, and then I got another spot up in Osad. And then who else? I just love people in the community and love you and everyone on Patreon. Uh, we do have a Patreon set up, and that helps so much. Oh, man, does it help. Patreon.com forward slash you uh, to the monthly subscribers. Thank you. And until next time, uh, be well. Be well. And uh, shoot for the stars. I'm serious. Don't stop. Don't stop. As gnarly as things get, and trust me, I know they get gnarly, don't stop. Don't look back and don't stop. Those are the two best pieces of advice that I've been given uh, since last January. Or now I'd say I've been off uh, the radio for a year. So I don't know, last April, May. Don't look back and don't stop. And work hard and be kind to yourself and others. Okay, bye. <laughs>